Welcome back to Beat Seeker. I'm your host, Matt McButter. In each episode, we explore the shifting world of music with world-renowned experts and artists to take you deep, deep inside the fascinating and changing world of music technology and music discovery. And I'm your host, Mike Weider, reminding you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you like the episode. You can visit our website at beatseeker.fm where you'll find plenty of rabbit holes with extra content to dive into, guest backgrounds, and even a playlist with music recommendations from each of our guest episodes. Also, Beatseeker swag. You can stay current and talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BeatseekerPod. Nolan Gasser is a critically acclaimed composer, pianist, and musicologist, most notably the architect of Pandora Radio's Music Genome Project and the company's chief musicologist from its founding in 1999. He holds a PhD in musicology from Stanford University. His original compositions have been performed in such prestigious venues as Carnegie Hall, David Geffen Hall, and the Kennedy Center, to name a few. Pandora was a pioneer in music streaming, arriving on the scene well before Spotify. They also popularized the concept of automated music recommendations, realizing their vision of creating a personalized DJ for all of us. We speak to Nolan about how Pandora got started and why the Music Genome Project was so critical to his success. We also talk about his recent book that tries to explain what shapes our musical tastes and why we love music. Nolan, welcome to Beat Seeker. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you with us today. Your career has touched on so many groundbreaking innovations in music, and we'd like to start with the Music Genome Project and your work with Pandora. Sure. My understanding is that you were finishing your PhD at Stanford and you were contacted by Tim Westergren to recruit uh, your help with a project called Savage Beast. Can you, can you tell the story of meeting with Tim and the birth of the Music Genome Project for our listeners? Sure, um, absolutely. So indeed, I was at the tail end or near the tail end of uh, completing my, my, my thesis uh, at Stanford in, in Renaissance musicology. My career prior, I've always been a composer and a pianist, and I studied in Paris uh, back in the late 80s. And when I was there, I discovered for myself music of the Renaissance. So it kind of took my career in a left turn. And I got fascinated with, with musicology, in particular, how music operates in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, quite different from post-Bach. And so the only way to really understand that, of course, is to, you know, go deep into, into the academic uh, you know, sources. And so I ended up getting fortunate to get into the doctoral program at Stanford and really thought my career was heading towards one in academia and publishing, which is which was no 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 problem certainly. But again, I've always been an active you know performing and composing musician. So I was I think I just taken my quals and I was like maybe halfway done with with, with my dissertation when indeed I got an email and was connected with Tim Westergren. And we actually did have a pretty lively, uh, and for, in my mind, you know, still quite vivid conversation at the coffee house at Stanford. And he told me about this brand new company. They had just gotten some, you know, some angel money. Uh, him and two founders, a guy named John Kraft, who was a fellow Stanford, a friend of, of Tim's uh, in, in the business realm, and a guy named Will Glazer, who was at Cal, um, Berkeley, uh, and was really uh, the the uh, the real sort of brains behind the sort of the engineering side. And the three of them said, "There's got to be a better way of recommending music 
uh, and connecting, um, you know, performing and and uh, recording musicians to the fans that would love their music and vice versa than what's currently available with, you know, uh, Amazon and the technology known as collaborative filtering, uh, which we can get into. Um, and so the idea was let's actually analyze the music in order to make those uh, better connections to actually see what's going on under the hood. And so Will came up with this, you know, a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek play on words from the Human Genome Project of the of the Music Genome Project. And the idea certainly was to break down music into some sort of genomic essence. But none of the three uh, were trained musicians. Tim is a musician and, you know, certainly quite talented, but a little bit more self-taught. Uh, he had been in a couple of rock bands and didn't have that deep kind of theoretical background. So they certainly needed people that could dissect music in a more technical, more theoretical standpoint. And I was at the right place at the right time. And he saw in me, not only did I have that background in music theory, and uh, music analysis, which is a big part of getting a getting a PhD uh, in 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 musicology, but that I was quite eclectic. Even though I was a classical musician, I was raised on rock, a rock rock musician, a jazz musician. Was always very interested in different musical styles. So he gave uh, me the opportunity. All three of them gave me the opportunity to take this idea of the music genome project. And to really run with it, and so I am the architect of the Music Genome Project. That's that's awesome. So, so Nolan, as I understand it, the I guess the idea is that we want to build algorithms that can provide better recommendations, and algorithms need data. And so the idea was to manually curate thousands, potentially millions of tracks um, to assemble this genome or database. That the algorithms could then feed on to give better recommendations, and you know, we interviewed on episode one um, an engineer, Paul Lemaire, who was at uh, one of the original guys at Echonest, which I guess uh, Spotify acquired some years later, and I guess they started probably five years after you guys got going, but they were using software and AI and bots to sort of go out there and assemble their database that would power their recommendations engines. You guys did something very different. As you note, you're using humans to do this. And I was wondering, why did you need humans? Was that because <laughs> your project kind of predated uh, the technology to do this in an automated way or that the the humans, there's no substitute for the, the human ear in these things and that you really need people to do it well? Well, I, I think it, it really is the um, latter. So... When, when Tim and I first met, just backing up to that meeting at the coffee at the coffee house, there we really talked about some of the problems in the music industry. Um, that you know the record labels had such a stranglehold on what was being promoted, the radio stations and their programmers. It was a pretty limited amount of music that really got a lot of exposure. And unless you were one of those people that liked to hang out at, at used record stores and kind of dive into the bins and were a real sort of aficionado, you'd have a hard time of connecting to music that really, you know, touched you in a in a in a in, a, in an important way and that kind of met your own taste profile. So uh, that really was the the essence. It really, there was really almost kind of a moral essence to what we were trying to do at Savage Beast Technologies. That was the sort of initial name of the company. And it was uh, coined by John Kraft, our, our, our original CEO. Um, and, 
you know, so the, the, the initial idea was let's, you know, break down music, let's analyze music. There was really never any kind of discussion of let's use machine learning or sort of, or sort of machine listening uh, to try to understand um, the, the music. But once we got going and I had already actually designed, I actually went to, to, to Milan. I was working still on, on my dissertation. I spent about six weeks there. And so a lot of the the first drafts of the Music Genome Project took place while I was there. And of course, as a musicologist, I understood what are all my 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 approach was actually, I think, more than the original founders, was to take this idea, this metaphor of the of the human genome project is the music genome project, to take it quite quite seriously. Obviously, it is a metaphor. Music is not a biological species. But the idea is how can we, what, what do we learn from the human genome project that we can uh, use to our benefit? So we humans have around 20,000 genes. We all share the same genes, right? And it's the way that, that our genes are expressed um, that make us who we are. And so we share a lot in common in terms of that expression of those 20,000 genes with our parents and our children and our siblings, but and less so directly with people we're not related to. But we still can share certain expressions of certain genes to, with people that, you know, have the same, you know, eye color or same propensity to be a good golfer or whatever it may be. Um, and so that could actually provide a good way of thinking about uh, how to analyze music in this organized way. Let's create a taxonomy, an ontology, where we break down music into all of its constituent factors according to the major, you know, parameters of music. So you got melody, harmony, rhythm, form, instrumentation, sound, obviously lyrics. These are just things that are so, you know, utterly complex that just on the face of it, I would have, I, I would be amazed and really very dubious that any kind of machine could give me much in terms of understanding the level of chromaticism in a passage or how modality is used to underlie uh, a, a, you know, a, a sort of harmonic palette or the way that sort of, you know, the, 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 the ostinato effect of melodies impacts, you know, the, the, the experience of a, of a, of, of a Rolling Stones song. Um, and so when we actually got started with Savage Beast and we were actually beginning to go out there in the marketplace, we, we did discover that there were other companies that were using machine learning. Um, uh, I can't even remember some of the names of them. Um, there was, you know, there were some, some good competitors like Mood Logic, uh, where Dan Levitin was uh, involved early on, and, and some others. I can't remember the ones that were using um, machine listening. But when we actually looked at what they were revealing, it was just so banal and it was just so un, unpenetrating into making those connections between pieces of music and correlating them to one's individual taste that, you know, certainly early on, it was nothing that we, uh, that we, thought worth pursuing. I think in more recent years, uh, I haven't been with Pandora in a, in a while. I think they are using some, because what can a, what can a can a machine what can a computer do? It can certainly capture, um, you know, the 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 sort of intensity of the sound, certain shifts in 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 dynamics, loudness and softness. But can it really understand how a melody <laughs> sort of defines right. a narrative? Right. 
I'm not sure. And I guess you, you know, these weren't just regular Joes off the street that you say, come in and listen to these songs and write down some attributes. These are actual music, musicologists or people with musical backgrounds that you're asking to do this task. Yeah. So we really had to create, and as I look back at it, it was really, you know, almost kind of crazy uh, and sort of miraculous that we were able to pull it off. We, you know, we the, the the genomes themselves have hundreds of genes, you know, 400 or or more individual factors. You know, we take these big parameters, melody, harmony, you break them down into the individual genes, and they have to be coded. And they're not just on or off. If, if a particular, you know, um, instrument is used. So, so if the flute is used, it's not just yes or no to the flute, but it's to what degree does the flute impact the experience and identity of the song? So there had to be a co you know, a scaling system. So all of that required not only a lot of training, but you had to be a, you know, a, a musician with a theoretical background. So we had a, you know, especially as we got more developed, we had a pretty rigorous, um, sort of assessment, you know, exam uh, <laughs> to even be considered to be a sort of music analyst. Um, and then you'd have to go through, you know, weeks of training uh, and QA um, in order to make sure that you understood what was required of you so that when you put your headphones on to listen to, you know, the latest song, you know, by Eminem back then or whatever, right. um, <laughs> that you that you knew or, or you know, a, a Miles Davis track or, or eventually when we got into classical, you know, a Stravinsky um, ballet, that you really knew what you were doing. Yeah, that's cool. I was saw I saw there was some interview on YouTube that I saw of Tim and Questlove. I guess he was a music advisor or had some affiliation with Pandora and Tim was giving him a tour of the area where you guys had the analysts set up and it was pretty cool. I think he was uh, he was impressed as well. And that they're setting up at these stations and there's a you know myriad of monitors and they're having to write down or or decompose all these attributes. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> kind of trying to uh, to sort of uh, re re reverse engineer what's what was going on. Yeah, it was amazing. We had there was this floor of a whole bunch of, you know, you know, a bunch of rock musicians, you know, and all of their, you know, <laughs> tour jeans. And, and it was a great gig, you know, you, you would get paid to listen and better understand music during the day. Hmm. And then you'd go, you know, back home and do, do your gigs at night. And so hmm. it was a very, um, uh, you know, sort of desirable position. And I think it really still is. Hmm. I'm picturing cliques developing, you know, they're like at the lunch table every day. There's like the jazz table and the rock table and the hip hop table. <laughs> I, I, yes. Well, indeed, you know, because we actually, you know, did one of the things that we do and I, and I, you know, as I look back, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm not too sure I would do it differently, but I, I do think there are things that, that Pandora even to this day could do. Uh, that I almost wish as a as a as a listener they would do uh, more than they're doing now. What we did is, you know, we we started off. Even though I'm a classical musician, I wanted to start with the most sophisticated, you know, realm, the most sophisticated species. It's it, this was a commercial venture, so we started, of course, where the money is in pop and rock. So we created our pop rock genome, called it the sort of main genome. Um, 
And uh, that's how we got started. And then the next genome that we built was actually through a uh, our one of our first uh, client relationships with Barnes and Noble. They asked us to create a jazz discovery um, uh, sort of you know application uh, for their website. And so we had to create a jazz genome, and that really was a for me was a big. Um, sort of expanse and evolution of the genome uh, that I think set the stage for all the other genomes. And of course, we went back to the main, to the pop rock genome. Uh, but then we later created a hip hop genome and then a world music genome, electronica genome. And then finally, at the very end, we created a classical genome. And, uh, you know, so in order to be a jazz genome, you just, you didn't just need to have a, uh, you know, a bachelor's in music theory or, you know, haven't taken music theory classes, but you needed to be a jazz musician, similar with classical and similar with rock. So we indeed had different, you know, <laughs> sort of lunch tables. And, but of course, there's a lot of cross pollination. And one of the, 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 the greatest things is we had a room uh, where we had, you know, different instruments and people could kind of jam, you know, especially on Fridays, we have kind of a jam session and people make fun styles and had a couple of you know public concerts and so back in those early days it was pretty pretty fun that's cool you mentioned that there were things that if you were doing it again today that you might you know or want pandora to do wondered if you could give us some examples of that i guess one one question that sort of came to my mind was that if this this is a proprietary database that's obviously owned by Pandora or used by them, but if this was an open source thing that similar to the Human Genome mm -hmm. Project, like that people could innovate on top of, you could think of this could be an amazing resource for the world to create some really interesting things from. I mean, it's a great it's a great question, and. Um, you know, and I do actually really agree with you that there, I think there's if if you did make it open source, the amount of innovation that could not just in terms of musicology and and sort of music analysis, but as relates to other kinds of research, including on the relationship between uh, sort of musicological elements and musical taste. Um, uh, that if this was really open, I do understand. Obviously, it's a it's a business, and they they and the the genome is the the you know the the IP. Um, so I get that. I mean, I, th I think at this point, there's sort of a barrier of entry that Pandora has in terms of the amount of music that's been analyzed. That'd be hard for anybody to, uh, to top that, but th that, that's certainly a question for them. Um, but one, one of the things, for example, um, that I, I always, I, I, I advocated uh, for really from the very beginning. And I think they're, they, they do a little bit of it, but, um, I think could do a tremendous amount more. And that's the, uh, the ability to go across genomes, it really in a, in a kind of sort of conscious way. So if you, if you kind of step back, you know, the, 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 the metaphor of the, of the, of the genome project is that, you know, this is sort of a, 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 a species, you've got the species of rock and it's got its genes. Uh, and then you got the species of jazz with its genes. Well, if you look at the metaphor of, of biology, we as humans share like 98% of our, of our genome with, with the great apes and even like 57% of our genome with the fruit fly, right? So, so there's a lot of, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of the genes that go across. And so 
I think it would be wonderful for so uh, for a listener to go on and say, you know, I'm a huge Bill Evans fan, you know, but so what would I like in rock? I'm not, a, I don't know that much about rock or what would I love in classical, you know, or I'm a, you know, I'm a David Byrne fan. What would I love in classical, you know, and because between the classical genome and the rock genome, there are a lot of genes that are, uh, th- that are in common. They may have some different scaling. Um, but that, you know, data science is obviously gifted at those kinds of things. And I think there may be some of that when they're creating, um, you know, some of the playlists now, because certainly, you know, I left really having any involvement with Pandora 2000, you know, eight, nine, um, maybe a little bit up, up until 2010, um, so I know they've done a lot of things since then, but like I can't go in and say, hey, find me what matches Philip Glass in, you know, in hip hop, right? Um, and I think that would be cool. I, the, the, the ability would exist just by, you know, finding those genes that are in common between the, the, the different genomes and then, um, you know, kind of going from there. In this day and age, is there still the same use of even having genres. I mean, genres were useful for your project. They were useful as an organizing mechanism when I was walking around a record store back in the day so that I, you know, could kind of go genre to genre. But in this day and age, particularly with all of the cross-pollination, those sort of hybrids, you know, hybrid species, um, you know, rap rock, trap rock, there's trap country, Lil Nas X's recent hit, they were calling country trap right? Which is kind of like a, a right. hybrid of hybrids. Um, and and now right. people don't really go and experience music by starting with a genre anymore. The way that they're getting their music digitally, they might get it around a mood, right? Like, or a, or a particular activity. Like I might have my Friday night party mix or my workout mix or Sunday chill. So what's your take on kind of the value of genres in in this day and age? Well, yeah, it's 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 another great question. I mean, this is actually a topic which has fascinated uh, musicologists and thinkers for for a very long time. Um, genre is a bit of a, I don't know, a sort of a double edged sword, or you know, it's got it's there. There are goods and bads of genres. Uh, I think it was um, Adorno that basically said that that genres. Um, you know, are sort of useless, uh, or meaningless rather, almost as soon as, as they're, as, as they're christened. Um, uh, because, you know, genres sort of, uh, suggest that something is, is confined, is something is fixed. It's a rock song, you know, or rock is this, or you know, trap is this, or impressionism is this. Um, but, you know, the, the art evolves, art, you know, artists are constantly, you know, sort of shifting the, their, their orientation and not wanting to sound like, like the previous generation and even the previous yeah. month. <laughs> um, and so it, genres, you know, most famously, you know, like Debussy hated the, 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 the word impressionism. And, you know, uh, if you talk to most, um, you know, musicians that are associated with with a genre label, you know, whether it's new 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 wave or you know or whatever it may be, uh, trip hop, you know, they uh, they probably take umbrage to it. But at the same time, there is a lot of a lot of value. You know, if you did not 
you know, if there if we didn't have genre labels, you really wouldn't have a way of a frame of reference for what you're going to be listening to. So it kind of provides you almost this this over overview, this overarching understanding. If you know that it's a jazz concert, you may not know, of course, jazz has many genres within it. But, you know, at least it gives you a sense of what you're listening to. You know, if you know that it's EDM, you know, if you're not a fan of EDM and you don't know, there's just, it just says concert, <laughs> you know, and you walk in and, you know, and it's, um, you know, it's an ambient thing, um, you might want, want your money back. So, um, you know, I, I, I do think there is value of genre, but I think that we also have to understand that, that genres are very porous things. And so when in the music genome project, in many ways, genre is more sort of metadata. And one of the things that I, in my mind, uh, with Pandora and with other projects I'm working on, make a very kind of distinct, uh, make a distinction between genomic data or intrinsic data and metadata or extrinsic data, right? So the fact that something was recorded by Eric Clapton, you know, and is on Atlantic and, you know, sold 100,000 records, that's all uh, that's all metadata. The fact that it's got, you know, a, a distorted electric guitar or it's blues based or, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> you know, it's got a harmonica solo. Um, that's intrinsic. That, that mm -hmm. That's genomic. And in some ways, genre is kind of metadata, right? It's you know, I, I, I always, you know, have found the, the term fusion useful too. Like not, not sort of capital F fusion, but, or, but small F fusion when sure. talking about a sort of something that falls in the seams, right? Between, between genres, right? Jazz blues fusion or, or, or something like that. Um, so I, one thing I, I, I noticed that different genres, just one more thing on the topic of this, sure. um, the different genres or, or species in the genome project had vastly different numbers of genes like rock and pop might have 200 genes whereas classical required you know 400 and some world music might require up to 450 is that just because of the permutations and combinations and complexity of those different genres or species or is it because is it for another reason well, it uh, it a lot of it comes down to the to the amount of music that has to be subsumed within that that species, right? So, uh, rock is you know basically from you know as we know it from say 1955 or so to the present, which is you know a good good many years, uh, you know 70 years or whatever whatever that is, yeah. uh, as opposed to you know classical where you're going back to you know early Gregorian chant in the ninth century. Uh, to 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 last Tuesday, so okay. uh, jazz likely uh, li likewise is a uh, uh, just a a greater amount of music and a greater amount of evolution from you know early in the twentieth century uh, till 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 today. So that's part of it, uh, but all, a lot of it also is a, a product of the you know the level of. Um, you know, expands, you know, I wouldn't even, I'm a little bit hesitant to use, say, the word, a word like, like, um, sophistication as a, you know, rock, really any genre can be as, as sophisticated as, as any other. But rock, you know, is, was kind of born out of the blues, um, you know, is generally is commercial music. So it generally tends to, um, you know, operate in a, in a, 
in a in a I don't know, a little bit smaller circumference of sort of musicological activity. You know, the the harmonic activity is not as say chromatic and sophisticated as you'll find in jazz. And that's not really, generally speaking, as expansive as you'll find in classical. So that that's part of it as well. It's like it's like when scientists say, you know, are, are looking at some species or, you know, two animals and they're like, you know, we're going to have to actually define this as a separate species. We thought it was the same species, but... It's a new species. Exactly. Right. So it, it, it eats a different kind of worm. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, so Nolan, several, several years ago, you authored a book called Why We Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. Was, was it your work on the genome project that inspired you to, to write this? It uh, it was certainly it was my work on the uh, on the genome project in Pandora that sort of enabled me to write this. <laughs> okay, I think I've always been interested in what's going on, why different people resonate with different music. When I was very young, my first gig uh, as a pianist, I played in you know I was eleven, and I played in a shopping center in my hometown in Southern California in the food court of this mall, and I was always interested in a lot of different styles, you know, Beatles and Elton John, but also Scott Joplin. And, you know, my mom was a big uh, sort of musical fan. So I played some, you know, Fiddler on the Roof and Sound of Music and a little bit of Mozart. And so I, you know, uh, sit down at the piano and people would, you know, ask me for different different songs. And, and I always knew, you know, the kid would, you know, somebody would come up and ask me for Stairway to Heaven. So I had to learn that, uh, which I played probably, you know, three times every, every time <laughs> I sat down. Um, and so just, you know, what's going on? Why do these, why does everybody like different music? So I, I mean, even though I wasn't analyzing it, I think I just came into contact with that, with that issue. Obviously with Pandora, it really became you know, critical. How do we define the music intrinsically, genomically? So when I, you know, was actually approached, would you like to write a book on your experience with Pandora? And, you know, I'd already been expanding this, uh, this topic in my mind. I gave a bunch of lectures, for example, trying to correlate you know, musical taste to our cell biology and been thinking about, you know, music and physics and what, what that has, how that is imp impacted our musical taste. So the book just, you know, gave me uh, this invitation to really go deep. And I certainly, you know, got into areas that I never imagined, you know, the whole question about if is music an, 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 an adaptive trait or not? And what is the, you know, what does the, actually the brain do when it's processing music? Uh, what's the role of memory? What is, you know, how do we, you know, so it, um, and then ultimately, and this is how I kind of, I'm almost going beyond what Pandora did. What are those other aspects of our lives, our cultural identity, our, uh, subcultural, I call it intracultural identity, our psychology, context, our training. What are these other things that impact why we resonate with music that we do? And the, how can we understand that about ourselves so that we can, you know, be, make more useful our musical taste to our own well-being? We'll be back in a moment after this brief commercial break. Our episode today is brought to you by Boombox. Are you looking for new ways to discover new music? 
Boombox is an app that turns sharing music with friends into a fun game. In each round of the game, players submit a song that matches a theme, like best song to dance to or best song I've heard this year. You then vote on who had the best picks. Boombox used to be played with just small friend groups, but recently introduced a new version where you can play in public games. Matt, we've been playing in a few of these games. How are you doing so far? The public games are definitely harder because you don't know the tastes of your fellow players as well. But it's really expanding my music discovery to new tunes I wouldn't have otherwise found. The game's super fun to play, and it automatically produces a Spotify playlist each round. To find out more, visit boomboxsoftware.com or download the app from the Apple or Google stores. And we're back. You talked about, I guess, really three things, right? There's science, our physiology, how our brain processes are down to the cell biology. You talked about culture. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, right? That we grew up in certain cultures and they like certain types of music. So we, we begun to associate with that. And then the third point though, around individual psychology, that one's maybe not as obvious. Like, can you explain that further? What, what is, how does our individual psychology impact what we like? Well, obviously, in 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 sort of many 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 ways, we have uh, different, you know, both by our by birth um, um, and by our upbringing, nature and nurture, we have certain uh, sort of a uh, sort of personality uh, sort of dimensions. Some of us are a little bit more uh, um, extroverted. Uh, it is, uh, goes back to you know some of the Jungian qualities, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or aspects of personality. And there are different um, you know sort of assessments that are out there, like Myers Briggs and 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 the Big Five is one uh, where people have on to different degrees they they kind of fall into different uh, sort of personality profiles. They're more open to experience. Uh, and it was more open-minded. They're more conscientious. They're more um, uh, extroverted. They're a little bit more sullen, um, uh, and and so forth. They're they're you know more sort of um, um, agreeable. And these these are kind of part of who we are, and how it affects how we interact with people. And so if you are more open to experience, if that's just part of your person personality profile, um, then you probably will be more innately open to exploring a musical style that you've you know that you haven't uh, experienced before or maybe a musical style you know whether it's a world music style or you know classical or jazz um that is maybe a little bit more sophisticated and maybe on the surface a little bit you know harder for you to you to uh, sort of understand uh, but you you aren't you aren't deterred by that so your your personality uh, can be can be part of that there are other things for example your your cognitive style uh, as it's kind of referred to if you're if you operate more in sort of an empathetic way as opposed to you know uh, where you're more you know sort of responsive um, you know more sort of organizationally uh, oriented on some level these will have an impact whether you're interested in in you know in in the music of Bach and it's you know very organized uh you know uh, sort of dimension or the music of Eric Satie which is much more of a sort of an emotional kind of expression um it's not a simplistic one-to-one correspondence by any means but 
who we are individually and our, our own psychology certainly is part of what's going on when uh, uh, when we say I love this music or I or I I I don't I don't care for that. I wanted to maybe just touch upon you, the point you're making about pe some people are open to new stuff and, and maybe some people are not. And, you know, there was a story I was reading about, which you would probably know far better than than me, about Stravinsky and when he debuted The Rite of Spring in the early 1900s. As I understand it, the performance was so controversial that a brawl broke out in the theater and that people were yelling and screaming. So, cause half the audience hated it. So, so passionately. And the other, the other bunch were saying that it's amazing. And, uh, and then only days later or weeks later, all of a sudden it became sort of, everybody was loving this thing and it became a classic. Uh, so there are sometimes when new stuff comes along and we hear it and then we we don't like it but then gradually it becomes accepted over time you know what is happening there can you explain this sort of phenomena of of how new music is is introduced well it obviously is is a complicated one but yeah so the story of the of the premiere of of, of the rite of spring in in, in paris in in 1913 is is pretty famous uh you know, Stravinsky was was a bit of a darling already. You know, his previous ballet was was Petrushka, and uh, has actually a lot of uh, some of the same characteristics, some of the same you know approach to harmony and some of the the sort of rhythmic freedom. Um, but it really is taken to town by Stravinsky in in, in the Rite of Spring. Um, you know, he was a student of Rimsky-Korsakov, and and really this very flamboyant approach to orchestration. But in this time, in the early 20th century, a lot of conventions were being challenged. All art is often just kind of a reaction. It's either a reaction to kind of promote something that's brand new, or it's a reaction against something that's considered uh, getting a little bit stale. And the thing that Stravinsky really introduced was a real freedom of of rhythm, sort of breaking the 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 tyranny of the bar line, as he called it. So that in the you know that that um, you know dance of the adolescence, that yum bum 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 yum bum yum bum bum bum, where you can't <laughs> you can't really tap your foot to it. You can't you know uh, find right. the downbeat because he he deliberately goes against it. So the first time that you would hear that, especially a more conservative audience that was used to, you know, the Strauss waltzes and <laughs> more, you know, everything being in 4-4 time, uh, would just find that very jarring. Where's, you know, what's going on? What is, what is he doing with that rhythm? And then all of the harmonies and just this vibrant color of orchestration. Uh, there's a very famous uh, story right in the beginning Oh, the opening is a bassoon solo, but it's way at the top of the bassoon's register. And famously, Camille Saint-Saëns, who was a very established French composer, said, you know, what instrument is that? You know, <laughs> so <laughs> new is often equated with, with, you know, bad, right, for, for some people and for others you know, kind of t already tired of the old, it was like, oh my God, here's our new, our new savior, uh, which I think is often, you know, over, over, overstated. And I think that in many ways that just the floodgates were open that, you know, especially the more aesthetically oriented 
uh, crowd could say, hey, we don't, we don't have to, you know, compose music, you know, hear music, you know, in the same old overwrought way that, you know, all of, you know, you know, other French composers like Saint-Saëns and César Franck and others were doing. Uh, there's a, now a new, more vibrant, more modern uh, way of, of doing it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. It, yeah, it really is fascinating. You know, I've, I've heard you describe, um, I guess, one of the goals of the book was obviously to understand where our tastes come from, but also to help the listener to empower our tastes. And I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit more about what you mean by that. If you had a bunch of people, you know, talking, you know, <laughs> while you're trying to have a conversation, you would tell them to, you know, to, to stop. But we can listen to music in the background um, and it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't impact us sort of negatively. So music can be great as background. Music for some, some personalities that are, you know, more that sort of empathetic quality um, in our cognitive style, they can actually be more effective doing homework for example, while listening to music in the background. Um, so music as background is, is great. But because our brains are so incredibly active when we're listening to music and all of these connections in different parts of the auditory cortex and the frontal lobe and the amygdala, the, the emotional centers when, when we're touched, it can send out all of these, these, these neurotransmitters, especially when, when music has certain properties or is affecting us. And when those, when we're actually listening intently, when we're shutting out the world and we're putting the headphones on or just turning the music up, um, we are able to follow the music and have all of that, you know, that narrative quality and those memories and that emotion sort of resonate with us. And that has an incredibly valuable effect on our physiology, right? You know, it lowers our blood pressure, um, our heart rate. It can, I think it can really stave off, you know, illness. And some studies are showing that it actually improves our overall uh, sort of well-being, just makes us happier when we're engaging, when we're empowering our musical uh, taste. I call it um, aesthetic listening. And one of, one of the most interesting things is uh, there was a study out of Australia that showed that people that say listen to music in this way, in this kind of conscious way, were able to kind of when there was something challenging in their lives, they were able to, you know, get out in front of it uh, emotionally and kind of deal with it and not repress it. Um, and so it better able to solve problems as opposed to people that maybe, you know, you know, didn't listen to music in this kind of aesthetic way where some of the, the negative emotion would be, would be repressed. Do you think kind of like meditation and mindfulness training that you're training your brain to be more resilient outside of the practice of those things. Yes, exactly. I mean, you you obviously don't need music to do that, but because we are so hardwired, we are musical creatures. I do, even if we didn't, even if music didn't help us evolve, our inherent musicality did help us to evolve. Uh, music plays such an important part in every culture. And so I think the, the, you know, the mindful use of music can be incredibly valuable. Music therapy is just one obvious example of that. Our, our previous guest, Paul Lemaire, described that sort of, you know, background music versus foreground music at, at Spotify as tilt 
which I thought was kind of useful. It's, you know, some music you lean into more when you, you know, put your headphones on and you're really paying attention to it as opposed to the music that you lean back and just kind of have on in the background while you're maybe, you know, um, uh, even reading or doing some work or, or cooking or working out where you're, it's kind of that, you know, lean back. So I, I like, I like that concept of tilt and I've thought about it even during my own, you know, daily music listening experience. Yeah. Again, which is not to, to, to disparage listening to music while, while, while you're cooking or just, just hanging out that, I mean, it, it definitely can enliven your mood. It can, you know, it, it can do all those things, but because music is an abstract language you know, if it's a if it's a you know a, a piece of music, maybe not ambient music, but you know if it's a you know piece by Bach or whatever it is, or there is a kind of a story that's being told, a narrative, harmonically, melodically, rhythmically, you know, sonically that is progressing through time. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're not paying attention, you're not gonna you're, you're gonna miss. It's like you know, if you just casually come in and out of the room when someone someone tells a story, you're not going to get the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's something in the act when you're tilting in, if you will, when you're leaning in and you're and you're following that narrative, that's when the brain is really processing and all that semantic and syntactic and memory and the emotional stuff is going on. And that's when at the right moment, when the right kind of chord progression comes up and the right sound, we get that amazing chills, right? That, you know, frisons it's called, um, which, uh, you know, is such a pleasurable thing uh, that really music is one of the very few things that can uh, that can create that and I don't know exactly what the individual you know health benefits of, of of chills but I it must be something and you and you won't get chills if you're not if you're not tilting in yeah endorphins are definitely being released at at that point right there's some kind exactly. of positive neurotransmitter loop yeah happening. I mean it's it's related it's the same part of our brain that is active when when we have sex and when we take drugs so <laughs> Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> so, Nolan, we like to ask all of our guests for a music recommendation. What are you into lately? Um, right. Well, very self-servingly, what I've been listening listening to a lot lately is the last part of my own album. <laughs> so, I've got an album coming out. It's a world music uh, rock collaboration. It's called Border Crossing. So you can look for that. Uh, it's not out yet, uh, but it's some amazing musicians. Other than that, um, boy, I mean, I just listen to so much. Depending on what project I'm in, uh, I'm working. I've been listening to um, a lot of Radiohead lately. Uh, you know, the the, the Benz and uh, Kid yep. A, and um, been listening to a lot of Astor Piazzolla. Argentinian uh, tango composer, um, just brilliant. There's a an oud player named Anwar Braham from Tunisia uh, that is you've been collaborating with some great jazz players as well as doing uh, a lot of. So that's that, that's that's great. That's I, some uh, very broad recommendations. Uh, yes, yeah, so they're, like they're exactly. Well, that's all like I map. say, I've always been eclectic. <laughs> Literally all over the map. So Nolan, if our listeners want to follow you or your work, where should they go? 
Uh, well, you could go to my website, which is just nolangasser.com, and I've got a you know a comment uh, or a feedback uh, section there. Um, you can you know email me directly. It's nolan at nolangasser.com. Uh, you can go to the Why You Like It uh, website as well, uh, which is uh, for the book, but it's got all kinds of cool things. Um, I'm actually at some point going to have my own podcast called Why You Like It. We'll, we'll be exploring in more in more detail some of the, the stuff that I that I explore in the book. So uh, I'm out there and please do feel free to, to, to reach out to me. Well, we'll be listening to that podcast and we'll put links in the show notes to uh, to it, to all of those places you just mentioned. I uh, really want to thank you for being with us today. It was a fascinating conversation. Really, really good. Thank you. Thanks so much. I, 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 I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Beat Seeker with your hosts, Matt McButter and Mike Wider. If you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, leave us a rating and a comment and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to dig deeper into this content, visit beatseeker.fm. That's B-E-A-T seeker.fm. And if you want to be part of the show, check out our Patreon link. Interact with us on social media at BeatSeekerPod. BeatSeeker is recorded in the Devil Lake Studios and the Tunnel Under Arundel. The show is produced by Matt McButter, Mike Wider, and Kate McCartney. Tim Ratledge is our editor. Thanks for tuning in and keep seeking.